<laughs> Brigadier General McAuliffe. He was deputy commander of the 101st Airborne in December 1944 when the German army launched a quite bizarre, if not mad, attack on the Allies and tried to break through to Antwerp. It became known as the Battle of the Bulge and was the Germans' last throw of a dice. And in fact, it actually brought the war to a speedy end because basically they threw their best troops in this attack on Antwerp and ran out of fuel. And so we were able to capture a lot of their men and their machines. But this general here was surrounded in the bulge and he was actually the, the deputy commander, but the commander himself was away in Paris. And so when the attack happened, because no one expected the attack happened, it happened at a mad time of year in the midwinter, he found himself surrounded and he had training troops because the idea the Americans had was in fact that they were going to put the men into a safe part of the line and no one accepts, expected the Germans to attack the forests in around Belgium. And so he re received on December 22nd, 1944, a communique under a white flag from the Germans. It said this, to the USA commander of the encircled town of Bastogne, the fortunes of war are changing. This time the USA forces in and near Bastogne have been encircled by strong armored units. More German armored units have crossed the river or near Offenville, and it goes on to describe the recent victories. He says, there is only one possibility to, to save the encircled USA troops from total annihilation. That is the honorable surrender of the encircled town. In order to think this over, in, as a term of two, I give you a term of two hours, which will be granted from the presentation of this note. If this proposal should be rejected, one German artillery corps and six heavy AA gun battalions are ready to annihilate the USA troops in and near Bastogne. The order of firing will be given immediately after this two-hour term. All the serious civilian losses caused by this artillery fire will not correspond with the well-known American humanity. Signed, the German commander. To which the brigadier simply sent this communique, taken by Colonel Joseph Harper, to the German delegation. It said this, to the German commander, nuts, the American commander. And when he gave this, this communique, the Lieutenant, Harp, Lieutenant Colonel Harper, to the German major, the German major looked at it and said, nuts, what does this mean? And Colonel Harper said, in plain English, go to hell. And of course, they gave this, it was taken back. They, 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 they tried to annihilate the American troops. And on Boxing Day, the 26th of December, they were relieved by other American forces that came forward from behind the lines. And they pushed back the Germans. And the Germans lost the Battle of the Bulge. Nuts! One of these many occasions that... Um, we have in Arnhem when the, the British troops were surrounded by the Germans. They tried to, they, they sent a white flag and a major in an armored car and said, We want to take your surrender. And, the, and, and, and a typical para major having an, an umbrella, and the only reason he carried an umbrella was because he could never remember the secret codes. 
And so he knew no other German, no German will carry an umbrella. So he knew that anyone who saw an officer carry an umbrella, he must be English. So this major, this famous major, carrying his umbrella. And the Germans came to the, um, the British and said, we want to negotiate your surrender. And the major said, we can't take your surrender. He said, no, we want to take your surrender. He said, no, no, we, we can't take your surrender. We're far too busy here fighting a war. And he refused to actually even allow the German to suggest that the British forces should, should surrender. Stubbornness. Sometimes stubbornness can be a great thing, can't it? We can think of people who, in their political career, have been stubborn. We think of this particular lady, known as the Iron Lady, someone who's like Marmite. Some people love her, some people hate her. But no one will forget what she said at the Tory party conference in 1981. You turn if you want to, the lady's not for turning. Perhaps it was her stubbornness that went too far that got her eventually removed from office, very shamefully in some ways. But she was an iron lady. You can think of someone else, another very, very controversial figure, this person here, Reverend Ian Paisley. There he is on an apprentice boy's march, even wearing his sash. And what was he famous for? He was famous for this mantra, no surrender, no surrender. Stubbornness. Stubbornness can be something that's good. Stubbornness can keep you holding the line. Stubbornness can keep you going in the right direction. It could also make you go in the wrong direction. So when is stubbornness right and when is it wrong? Well, it's always wrong when it opposes God's will in our lives or in the lives of others. And this is what we hear, this is what we see happening in Genesis 27. This is a famous passage, isn't it? I remember being taught this in school and, and, uh, and in Sunday school. And really, you know, often people, when they describe this, really describe the deceit of Jacob and poor old Esau. Poor old Esau. And yet when you look at the text and really read the text, it's not poor old Esau. It's not even poor old, ja uh, poor old Isaac. Because we see here a very typical dysfunctional family. And we see stubbornness. First of all, we see Isaac as a weak parent. It begins with a statement in verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for his elder son Esau. The problem with Isaac wasn't so much his weakness in his sight, it was his weakness in his affections for his son Esau. He was weak generally, not just down to his advancing years. He'd been chosen, he'd only seen what he wanted to see for a long, long time. And this becomes very apparent when you look at his story in Genesis. He was ignoring what was right for his family. He was even ignoring the will of God for his family. His wife, Rebecca, had experienced a troubled pregnancy. We heard about this a couple of weeks ago. So when she goes to seek God as to why she was having this, this problem, God gives her an oracle in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 23. And, and we're told here, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the elder will serve the younger. God had said that the younger child, the second child, Jacob, would be in, in charge of the family. Now, this actually wasn't that unusual. 
Inheritance was always seen normally to fall to the elder boy, but in the, in the circumstances where the elder boy wasn't fitting to become the tribal leader, it always went to the second or even the third or fourth child. This is what happened in the ancient East, and there's plenty of examples of this. But the problem was is that we're told that Isaac had a taste for wild game, and he loved Esau. God had told Rebekah that these two sons were, were, were going to be trouble. They were going to be difficult. They were difficult in their womb as she carried them in pregnancy. They would be difficult when they were born. And she told her, 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 her husband, she told the family. This, was an open, this wasn't a secret. It was open. People knew about it. But Isaac had repeatedly refused to acknowledge it. Why? Because he loved I, uh, his son Esau. He had a taste for wild game and he loved his eldest son. We don't know why. Perhaps he loved the lifestyle. He loved the fact that he was a great hunter. He loved the idea perhaps of thinking that when he was younger he was also a great hunter. We don't know. But we know he was partial to one son over the other. Isaac was a man who was driven by his appetites. And so he secretly planned to bless Esau against the Lord's wishes. And so he had a conversation with his eldest to go and hunt some game and then prepare a dish so they could go and eat together. However, it's very hard keeping secrets in a tent. And that's why he lived in those days. It was a tent. And so it didn't take much for Rebecca to overhear this apparently secret conversation that he was having with his son Esau, even against the recommendations or the will of God, this oracle. I don't know if you've ever been camping. I've been camping many times. It's very hard, particularly hard with children, isn't it, to keep anything secret. That's the big, most difficult thing about camping. And it's hard to keep things secret in a tent. So, so she heard. And so she goes, goes and starts to, to actually form another plot. She tells her, her um, sorry, she goes to another plot. But it's all about this idea of what Isaac likes. And you'll find in this passage, there's a rep repetition of his idea of tasty food. It comes in verse 4, it comes in verse 8, and it comes in verse 14. Now, we're all told that a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. But it seems to be literally true in the case of Isaac. He'd become a materialist, someone who was wanting and craving things, and the way to get, get, way to, to, get to his heart was, in fact, to give him what he wanted, his appetites. For Isaac is all about tasty food. You know, it's very interesting that temptation so often is aligned to our appetites. Go back to the original temptation in Genesis. The very first temptation in Genesis 3, verse 6, we're told, when the woman saw that the fruit of a tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. You know, we are to be a spiritual people and not driven by our appetites. And this threefold repetition of tasty food is significant in the Bible. For it seems that Isaac lived by his senses, all except his critical faculty of hearing. We see this later on. 
we find that when Jacob goes to him, we're told this. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him. For Isaac, it's become about touch. It's become about smell. It's become about taste. But he refuses to acknowledge the fact that this doesn't sound like Esau. It sounds like Jacob. He stopped listening. Jacob prefers his other senses to the faculty of listening and hearing. Now easy it is for us as Christians to find ourselves going down the wrong road simply because we've become Christians who have stopped to listen and we can't hear the Lord speaking. We've got to be Christians who treat seriously our faculty of hearing. Isaac had began to go down the route of loving his appetite. Is it little wonder then that his son makes the same mistakes? Selling his birthright for a for a bowl of stew led like his appetites like his father and so basically Rebecca has to act quickly to ensure that her second son Jacob is to get the blessing as God has decreed and so she uses deception and this is one of these really interesting passages in the Bible where we see deception used but it's not outwardly condemned it's used and it's definitely not, 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 not appealed to and apart from Jacob's name, it just goes as, as a way of securing the, the patriarchal line. It's fascinating. I remember being at college, and I've always loved ethics, and, and the discussion about when should a Christian or not when should a Christian lie or not lie. It was, it was a situation that uh, Corrie ten Boom had to really think about. What did she do when the Germans knocked at her door and said, "Are there any Jews in this house?" Of course, she's not going to say, of course there are, they're hiding behind the wardrobe upstairs. She had to use deception. And we find deceptions used in several passages in the Old Testament. For example, they are the Hebrew midwives in Egypt in Exodus chapter 1. And these women are commanded by the Pharaoh to actually kill the boys. And she doesn't, they don't. And they pretend that actually what happens, they tell a lie. They say, basically, Pharaoh, it's not our fault that the Hebrew women are so strong, they give birth before we arrive. You know, we go to do our job as midwives. Before we get there, the baby's already born. We can't stop this happening. They lied, and they got away with it. And in fact, they're, they're praised in a sense, but they're even named in Scripture. Normally, you know, the, the, um, the surrounding cast aren't given names, but we're told the women's names in Exodus chapter 15, um, sorry, Exodus 1, 15 to 20. And there's another famous case, isn't there, of Rahab. Rahab even appears in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Rahab, a prostitute, and what does she do? She hides some spies, Hebrew spies, who are spying out the land, and the, and the king knows that these men have gone to her room, and he thinks, well, actually, she's a prostitute. She's just, you know, she's just doing her job, if you like. But he says, you know, keep them there, and we're going to come and arrest them. And she says, oh, no, they've gone already. Before it got dark, they escaped through the doors before they closed. And in fact, they went over there. He says, if you're quick enough, you'll catch them. But then we're told in the text, she'd hidden them on the roof and put them under, uh, under um, bales of straw or, or flax on the roof. And she hid them and told a lie. And of course, then she, hold, she has this wonderful scarlet cord that she, she's told to have going from the window in, in the walls of Jericho from her window. So when the, when the city is taken, 
her family and her life is spared. Deception, lies. It's very interesting that it is, these, these occur in this story. And we find here there's deception occurring, but it's occurring in order to safeguard the line because of the stubbornness of Esau. Esau is not listening to God. Esau is wanting to bless his son, even given his son's behavior. And you'll get a picture of how bad his son's behavior is when we look at him now as the playboy's son. We heard a few weeks ago that Esau lived the life of a playboy. And there's a critical verse in this passage in Genesis 25 and verse 27 that says this, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And this is code. And what's being said here is that Esau was actually living a life as a, as, as a game. He was going after game. It was a big game. It was the hunt with his bow and arrow. Where Isaac, sorry, whereas um, Jacob was at home among the tents where his father's flocks were and he was doing his father's business. Jacob was looking after the family and the family business while my son Esau was simply living the life of Larry. He was out there hunting. He preferred to live life as a game than working in his family business. And this is why later on we find that Esau is roundly condemned when we come to the New Testament. And when we, when we build a picture in Scripture, we must always, always take the whole view of the Bible of a person's character. So when we come to Hebrews chapter 12, we find it says this, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Hebrews is telling us that what happened to Esau was down to him. He was a self-made man. He was a self-made mess. We mustn't feel sorry for Esau. You see, the truth is, it's Esau given his birthright to Jacob, so it is no longer Esau's. And when he tried to take it from his brother Jacob, he in fact was trying to steal back the, 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 the birthright. What happened with birthrights is that there were two, two fashions. There was the birthright given to the son, the oldest boy, that was um, basically your right. It was always confirmed, latterly, by the giving of the blessing. It was like a two-point ceremony. And what Isaac and Esau were planned to do was in fact to affirm something that didn't, wasn't now belonging to his elder boy because it had been given in a contractual arrangement with Jacob. Genesis tells us in chapter 25, 34 that Esau despised his birthright. But it wasn't just his inheritance that Esau despised. And this is what I want you to get a picture of to understand about this passage because we find through Hebrews, and we find through this passage that also Esau despised his faith. He despised his God. He refused to accept the news that his mother gave him that he should serve his younger brother. He, in fact, despised his mother and father. You're always told um, when you read Scripture to put it in its context. And there was a context we missed earlier on because we just read chapter 27. But if you go to your Bibles now and go to the verses before chapter 27, the final part of chapter 26, you'll find these verses. 
Chapter 26 is immediately before chapter 27. It says this. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beri, Beri the Hittite, and also Basmath, daughter of Elon, the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac, Abraham had sent um, one of his servants to Haran to find, his, to find a wife for his son. And they, and they came back from Haran bringing Rebekah. Esau wasn't bothered. He saw, he saw not one woman, but two Hittite women, and he just married them. He didn't just marry one, he was a polygamist. He married two, because he was a man driven by his appetites. He rejected the encouragement of his family to find a, a, a wife from his own tribe. He insisted on in doing things his own way. He shows, dis, he despises not only his God, he despises his family. And the consequences, his family are suffering. So that explains why the very, very final verse we read just now explains what's happened in verse 46 of this chapter. When it says, then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living with these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife among these women of this land from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. And so basically, Jacob gets sent away on the understanding he's going to Haran to find a wife, not he's going to Haran to escape the wrath of his brother Esau. Rebekah's a very cunning operator, a very clever woman, the way she does things. See, Esau's unwise marriages are bringing strife to the home of Isaac and Rebekah. Yet still, still Isaac doesn't see it. He doesn't see how unsuitable Esau is. He doesn't see he's not the right person to inherit the blessing. He doesn't see he's not the right person to become the tribal leader. He doesn't see it because he loves the lifestyle, the playstyle lifestyle of his son. You know, it's said there's none so blind as those who cannot see. Esau was blessed by his father in his father's eyes because his father loved what he shouldn't have loved about his eldest boy. And of course, what happens? Well, we're told that Esau then, then blames Jacob. It's Jacob's fault. He's tricked him twice. Well, of course, he sold his birthright. He didn't trick him the first time. Like typical of so many people who get their lives into problems, it's not my fault, it's someone else's. He blames his brother Jacob. And then we're told out, he gave a loud and bitter cry in verse 34. And eventually in verse 38, we're told Esau wept aloud. Perhaps these tantrums in the past, when Esau was a little boy, worked on his father. You've seen that, haven't we? Parents who are manipulated by the tears and the tantrums of their children. But now he's an adult. You can't impact your life with others by tears. And so the book of Hebrew tells us this. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Hear what the New Testament says. It's not what Jacob has done. It's what Esau has done. The simple fact is that Esau was not a fit man to leave the tribe. He was not a fit man to carry the blessing. He was not a fit man to carry on the patriarchal line. And if proof of all that, what happens? When Jacob uh, uh, um, so-called steals the blessing of Esau, Esau then decides to prove he's fundamentally not right by planning murder. 
Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessings his father had given him. He said to himself, for days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. It's all there. He even has the heart of a murderer. And so when Isaac, under the inspiration of a spirit, does give Esau a blessing in verse 40, he says in that blessing, you will live by the sword. The Edomites, the tribe that Esau became the head of, was a bloody and a, and a murderous tribe. They lived by the sword. They lived by their appetites. Don't feel sorry for Esau. He was a playboy, an immoral man, a self-made man. So, now hopefully you're all thoroughly depressed and thinking, what's good about this passage? Well, there is something wonderful about this passage. And what this passage gives us is an allegory of what is happening later on in the New Testament. You need to put on a pair of New Testament goggles and look at this passage from New Testament goggles because in the blessing of Jacob, we see something quite wonderful. We see the future blessing of the Christian. You see, there are various elements that simply jump out at us when we put our biblical goggles on. First, we see this, a sacrifice. Rebecca tells her son, she says this, go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father. What's happening here? To get the blessing, a sacrifice is made. Two young goats are killed to make a meal for Isaac. And so we see hinted here the future sacrifice that we made by the son so we would receive the blessing of the father. Hebrews 8 Hebrews 10 verse 8 says this, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That sacrifice was critical. Without that sacrifice, Jacob could not get the blessing. What happens also in here, we see a substitution. Jacob, fearful that his father will curse him for his role in his mother's plan, says so to his mother, and his mother says this. She says, my, 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 my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say and go and get them for me. And again, it reminds us of the New Testament picture of salvation, but the curse that should rightly fall upon us falls upon Jesus. What does the Bible tell us? Curse is anyone who's put upon a tree, and Jesus was put upon a tree, upon a cross, for you and me. And this happens to Rebecca, in the sense that, um, that Jacob has to flee from Esau's wrath. And Jacob will never see his mother again. And Rebecca will never see her son. The idea initially is he goes away for a while, but he actually goes away for over 20 years. And by the time he comes back, Rebecca is dead. She bore the curse. She loses Jacob. So Jesus bore that curse of the cross for us. Why? So like Jacob, we can go free and we can escape death. And then also the wonderful picture here of a covering in this whole experience. We're told in verse 15, then Rebekah took the best clothes of her elder son Esau, which she had had in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. She also covered his hands with a smooth part of his neck with the goatskins. And don't think of, you know, these are huge goatskins, if they're not, they would have been um, sliced and, and, and taken down. It would have been a very, very thin layer of skin with, the, with some of the hair, not all the hair, it would have been cut back. 
because um, he, he wasn't simply goatskin put on the back. It was very cleverly done. But he was covered with royal robes of the sun and air and the skins of sacrificed goats so that he was able to receive the blessing of his father. You see, Jacob's not able to come into the presence of the father because he isn't the right son. He's not fit to receive the blessing in Isaac's eyes. And so we have this picture again of us being given righteous robes. We can't go into the presence of God and receive the blessing of God. What does the Bible tell us? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, there's a whole series in the Old Testament and the New Testament of holy clothes being given to believers to stand in the presence of God. Isaiah 61 verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in robes of his righteousness. And then there's a wonderful picture in Zechariah of Joshua. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to him, sorry, said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. But he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. And so we see in salvation, Jesus takes our dirty clothes. The clothes that mean we can't go into the presence of the Father. He takes them and he gives us robes of righteousness so we can come before the father and so finally we see Jacob receives the father's blessing and that blessing is the blessing for the church a blessing that we will enjoy heaven's due and earth's richness a blessing that we will receive abundance of grain and new wine that many nations will serve God's people and bow down to God's people the blessing of Jacob is also the blessing of the church. And this brings into mind another deception. Because in a sense, the whole gospel story is a deception. You see, what is happening in the New Testament when Jesus comes to the world in flesh? Satan sees him. He first tries to test him and to tempt him, beginning the ministry. That fails because Jesus refuses to listen to Satan. So what does Satan decide? Satan decides he must kill the son. And Jesus tells parables about this, doesn't it? The idea of the son coming and, and people killing the, the son of the, and, and saying, if we kill the son, we will get the inheritance. And so God plays along with this idea. And so the son is taken, and the son is taken and put upon a cross. He's judged by human courts and found guilty and worthy of death, and he dies. And Satan thinks he is one. And for the whole Easter sun Saturday, it's like a pregnant pause. The whole of the world is, is, is waiting. How can this have happened? But disciples are depressed. But death cannot keep him, we're told. Why? Because God is God's son. His son in whom God is well pleased. And he has done nothing wrong. He cannot be held by death because he is perfect. And so God raises his son. And he raises his son and suddenly his son the death of his son it can be seen not for his own behalf but on behalf of others there was a great deception in the gospel story this is what's referred to in passages like Colossians 2 verse 15 where it says and having disarmed the powers and authorities he made a public spectacle of them 
triumphing over them by the cross. With the cross, Satan thought, I have done it. I have defeated God's son. I am now the ruler of this planet. But the cross becomes a triumph and not a defeat. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. You would have gathered from my, from my sermons I'm deeply indebted to the man Charles Staple Lewis, a great thinker from the, uh, from the um, last century. And in his book, The Lion, the Wish and the Wardrobe, um, this whole deception comes out in a wonderful way. And there's a point in the book towards the end that Aslan is being killed and he was killed and, and murdered on the great the big stone table. And, and basically his body's gone and, and the children are, are trying to find where Aslan is and they find the stone table and they know that, the, that Aslan, their, their prince, has been killed. And suddenly, as a, as a, before the stone table, they hear an almighty crack and that stone table shatters. And then suddenly they hear a voice, a voice behind them. And, Lu and Lucy says, is this some other magic? And the voice of Aslan speaks out and says this, It means, says Aslan, but through the witch, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there is a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start walking backwards. Satan was duped. He thought he had it. He thought he had it in the bag. Jesus, Christ, was on the cross. But Jesus was on the cross not for his sin, but for yours and mine. And so God was able to say that death could not keep his son because death was only a punishment for sin and Jesus had done no sin. And so he raised, was raised again for you and for me. Genesis 27 is, is a wonderful passage in a sense that it shows you that even in the biblical story there was dysfunctional families and boy, that's one dysfunctional family. And yet in what happens we see a parable of what God does for us through his son Jesus. But to receive the Father's blessing, Jesus is our sacrifice. He bears the curse for us. He gives us the robes of a son in air to wear so we can stand in front of the Father and receive his blessing. People, God loves you so much that he paid the price for yours and my sin. And our righteousness, our purity, even our holiness is not ours, but his. But he gives it to us so we can stand before the Father and receive his blessing. Let's stand and respond to this message by singing together that wonderful